Listen, whatever this world tells you, pay attention to what God says. One of the marks, one of the genuine marks of true conversion is that when you meet God through faith in Jesus Christ, you will be ashamed of the things that you once applauded. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of Romans, and today we conclude our look at chapter 6. In verse 17, we find the Apostle Paul commending his readers, who he says were formerly slaves of sin, to having become committed to a particular type of teaching. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy looks at just what type of teaching that consisted of. What's he talking about when he speaks of that form of teaching? You see the word form? It's the Greek word tupos. We get our word type from it. We've studied types before in the Bible. We're in the Old Testament. God gives an illustration of something that prefigures what Jesus Christ, what Messiah would ultimately do. It's also used in the New Testament to describe a standard or a pattern of teaching or a manner or a fashion to that manner or a pattern or standard or form of teaching to which you were committed. Outside of the Bible, the Greek word tupos is used of the impression on a seal. It's used of the imprint on, from a branding iron. It's used of uh, the indentation of a footprint. Or it's used of the marks left by someone's teeth when they bite into something. It's also used outside of the Bible of something that is molded, something that's casted into a mold, much like we would take a, a jello mold and we'd pour the jello into it and it's cast into a certain shape. Paul is saying when you get saved, God begins a process in which you are formed, you are shaped, you are fashioned by teaching, teaching that you could not receive prior to your conversion. You see, an unbeliever can understand enough to be saved, and that's as far as it goes. And some never get that because they won't respond to the light God has given them. Someone asked me on Thursday night, Pastor, if salvation is only through Jesus Christ, what about the person who's never heard about Jesus Christ? And if you don't know the answer to that, come to our discovery class. Because I'm not going to answer it for you this morning. But here's the point. That when you get saved, you have a new ability. Why? Because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't appraise them. He can't receive them because they're spiritually received and appraised. But when you get a new heart, you get the mind of Christ, and you have a new ability in which to receive truth. So what is it that molds us? The truth, the doctrine, the teaching. When we come to Romans chapter 12, he'll tell us to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And then he'll say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your minds. J.B. Phillips renders it, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Verse 17 is a great thought because God is saying, as a child of God, you're being molded, you're being shaped by truth. That's why pastors are supposed to feed the flock of God with the word of God. We are to teach truth. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves 
of righteousness. Now verses 12 and 13 teach you are still capable of sin, but at our conversion, God decisively rescued us from the lordship of sin into the lordship of God. Paul will tell the church at Coloss, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So two slaveries, one by natural birth, the other by a spiritual birth. So having described the beginning of these two slaveries, he now describes their development. Notice verse 19. He begins, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Paul's giving an apology of sorts here. He's having to use human terms because it's difficult to use divine terms in a way that our puny little finite minds can embrace it. And so he's telling us that this analogy between masters and slaves, the Holy Spirit is giving it to him under the inspiration of the Spirit. But the Spirit of God through Paul wants us to know that it's an inadequate analogy. Because while God needs to use it to describe our past life and our present life, our present life is so much more. Jesus, for instance, will say in John 15 and verse 15, No longer. Do I call you slaves? For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. And so this master-slave relationship doesn't totally conjure up all that we have in Christ. And so in John 15, it's one of the great not this, but this in the Bible. Not this exclusively, but this. You are not slaves only, but we are slaves. And Jesus taught that in the Gospels. But we're more than slaves. We are friends of the Lord. But he wants to use this analogy right now because he wants us to get it and because of the weakness of our flesh. Notice what he says. For just as, circle that word just as in your Bible. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, circle the word so now, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Just as, so now. God's trying to help us to understand how it is practically that these two slaveries will develop. Each slavery will develop. Neither slavery will stand still. Each slavery is going to develop. Neither is going to stand still. So just as you want under the old system, before you were converted, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, that only resulted in further lawlessness because the wages of sin is more sin. Now you present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Be just as enthusiastic, Paul is saying, as yielding to Jesus as Lord as you once yielded to your old sin nature. Or someone in the 16th century said, be as good a saint as you once were a sinner. Now, I wish I could tell you that I never had a drop of alcohol in my life. But I did. My senior year in high school, I drank. I had not met Jesus Christ as my Savior. My freshman year in college, I heard the plan of salvation. And early on, within a month, as we began to uh, get engaged in Bible study, I began to learn what the Bible said about alcohol. And I am absolutely convinced then, as I am now, both by precept and by principle, that God's Word teaches abstinence. As a general principle, the Bible teaches abstinence. And I say as a general principle because there are some exceptions. Jesus, for instance, in the parable 
of the Good Samaritan said that you could take wine and you could, you could pour it on a sore. Why? Because it would kill the bacteria in the sore. Or in Proverbs 31, God says you can give it to a dying, despairing man in the same way that we would give morphine today to a dying, despairing man. Not to make him a drug addict, but to, as an act of, of mercy to relieve his suffering, to relieve his pain. I have sermons dealing with abstinence. Some of you don't want to hear them. You would say, don't confuse me with the truth. Mm? And we have a lot of popular pastors today. Probably the most popular young pastor in our nation is teaching our young people that it is okay to drink. And so he gives his testimony online that for 30 years he never touched a drop of alcohol. And then he was studying John chapter 2. And God convicted him that he should drink. And now he drinks wine with his pizza and he has cocktails with his wife. I studied John chapter 2, and I was absolutely convinced that I shouldn't drink. He has an errant interpretation, just as he does on this filthy book that he's published on sex, telling heterosexual couples they should do things that homosexual couples do. His mind was planted in filth and pornography, and it has influenced his teaching. Now listen to me. Alcohol is a bad thing. And again, if you're not convinced by it, you listen to some of my sermons. I want you to be convinced from the Word of God. And don't write me off as some ignorant rube. I went through a four-year master's program and a three-year doctoral program. And I've studied this issue up one side, down the other. And there are good reasons why 30 years ago, every leading evangelical pastor in this nation taught that Christians should abstain. But now we're enlightened. We see things that other people have not seen. So I was taught early on that you should abstain. And some months later, I just felt the craving for a beer. I went to a convenience store. Nobody was around. Nobody saw me, but God did. I went and I purchased a can of Schlitz. And I pulled that tab. That's how you did it in those days. You, you pulled it off. And Romans 6 that I had nearly memorized was just floating through my mind and heart. And I took that can and I turned it upside down without having a sip. That was over 35 years ago. And that was the last time I ever touched a can of beer or was exposed to holding alcohol in my hand. Except the ones that float up in my marsh and people throw on my front lawn. It was a decisive moment for me, and I will never forget it. Because I was making a decision to present myself as a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what your weakness is. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's deceit. But you will become a slave of the one to whom you present yourself. And God wants you to understand that neither slavery will stand still. Both slaveries will develop in one way or the other. And so having described these two slaveries, having described their beginning and their development, now he describes their end in verses 22 to 20 to 22. What is their ultimate end? Well, they both offer a kind of freedom, one freedom that's spurious and fake, the other that's real and authentic. Notice, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. The American Standard Version of 1901 renders it as the King James. You were free from righteousness. Now, that's a little wooden, a little awkward in English. 
but it is a good expression. When you were unsaved, you had no righteousness, neither positionally nor practically. And so in that sense, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were like the prodigal son who wanted, quote-unquote, freedom. So he left home to enjoy himself, and in his rebellion, he fell into deeper slavery, and his sinful desires multiplied and expanded to the point where he was serving pigs. But then when he thought, this is not the kind of, quote-unquote, freedom I want, he went and he yielded himself to his father. But before his conversion, he was free from righteousness. Well, God wants us to understand that when we become believers, we take on a new righteousness and there's a new freedom, which brings us to my final point, and that's God's outcome from these two slaveries. God's outcome from two slaveries. The freedom of verse 20 is not true freedom. So Paul asks the question in verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Rhetorical question. Answer, no benefit at all. Now, Paul mentions a word in this verse that has virtually disappeared from our vocabulary today. And it is the word ashamed. And there's a sharp contrast in the book of Romans between the conscience of a lost man as he develops his slavery into sin and the conscience of a saved man. If you remember in Romans 1, we saw those three great statements as God gives a society over, as God abandons the people. And what you see in Romans 1, the Bible teaches in the Olivet Discourse, God will ultimately do with the whole world. And I believe we're seeing that in our day. God gave them over three times over. God gave them over to impurity, and so sexual immorality expanded. And that sexual immorality, whenever a heterosexual culture is immoral and it becomes widespread, it gives birth to homosexuality. And so God gave them over into homosexuality. And then the third great, and God gave them over, and there's that awful list of the heinous things that we are seeing witnessed before our very eyes in this day. And when you come to the end of the chapter in 132, he says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. When a society defends sin, when a government applauds heterosexual sex outside of marriage, when they encourage as a civil right homosexual sex, when they applaud things that God calls evil, that is a nation that is under the wrath of God and that is a world that is being given over and being prepared for judgment. Listen, whatever this world tells you, Pay attention to what God says. One of the marks, one of the genuine marks of true conversion is that when you meet God through faith in Jesus Christ, you will be ashamed of the things that you once applauded. And if you've never experienced that, you've got true good reasons to search your own heart and to see if you've met Jesus Christ. And so we read in verse 21, what benefit? Were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. Death for the unbeliever is not only separation from God in this life, but eternal separation. But for the Christian, there's a loss of fellowship. There's a loss of personal testimony, the loss of a clear conscience, a stoppage of all spiritual growth. 
Some of the most miserable people in this world are not lost people, but those who are saved and out of fellowship. Verse 22, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome? Eternal life. In a practical sense, a consistent walk, a deeper growing knowledge of God as he reveals himself to you. And in the ultimate sense, glorification when Jesus comes back and changes you forever. Satan offers a freedom, but it's not the way God spells freedom. There's a bondage that he wants you to be engrossed in. Verse 23, he brings this section to a conclusion. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two key words there, wages and gift. A wage simply said is what you get for what you do. It is the Greek word osonion. And it was used in the New Testament era as a payment for a Roman soldier. In fact, usually when Roman soldiers were paid, when they were given their osonion, they were given a piece of salt. Because salt was a commodity that could be traded and, and transacted like coinage could. And so we have the expression, even in our day, from this ancient practice, that employee is worth his salt. And so for the lost man, he gets paid. It comes as a balloon payment. It comes in the end. Where because he does not know God, he is cast into the lake of fire. But God says the free gift... And it is free because we do not deserve it is eternal life. Now, we usually take Romans 6.23 and we apply it evangelistically. And that is a legitimate application. But understand it in its context. In its context, he's not applying it evangelistically. He's applying it sanctifyingly. He's applying it to God's people. He's saying because God has saved you and given to you what you do not deserve, yield yourself as a slave to him. So Paul began by discrediting the false teachers of his day in verse 1 when he asked the question, are we to continue in sin? And it's a question the enemies of the gospel ask, and it's a question that the, enemies, the enemy of your soul will ask. Satan will say, did God really say that? He didn't really mean that. And after all, go on, you're under grace. God will forgive you. And Paul would answer, may it never be. And so our ability to say no needs to be based on sound theology. And 1 through 14, because of our identification in Jesus Christ. And 15 to 23, because of our new slavery as we have yielded to Jesus Christ as our Lord. So let me apply this with three questions. Indeed, God has united us to Christ. He's enslaved us to God. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, am I truly free? Am I truly free? Jesus, when he spoke to the religious leaders of his day, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The Bible teaches that if you've been saved, that you've been bought out of the slave market of sin. Now you might be asking, well, what benefit is that? What advantage is there to being a slave of God when before I was a slave of sin, it seems to me that I'm still a slave? Well, if you think about it, freedom is not total. If you think about it, freedom is not total autonomy because no one is truly independent. Biblically, as I said at the start of this message, freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. 
Freedom is doing that which you ought to do. I have the freedom to swing my arm, but it stops when it reaches your face. My liberty ends where your nose begins. Freedom is slavery to the right master. And when you've been saved, you'll say, God, I am yours. Whatever you want, I willfully am your slave. So I would ask you this morning, are you free? Secondly, we might ask ourselves this morning, if I am truly free, then why do I struggle with sin? Well, apart from not knowing the plan of sanctification, let me give you some other reasons given in the New Testament. One, because we like it. One reason we like it is because we're tempted to sin. And temptation is fun when acted on. Is it not? Temptation is tempting because it's tempting. If something is not tempting, then it's not temptation. Don't ever tell a, a lost person there's no fun in sin. There is fun in sin for a season. The Bible says that Moses chose the ill treatment with the people of God rather than the passing pleasures of sin. So sometimes we struggle with sin because we prefer it and we've been deceived by the evil one that God's ways are not best. Or sometimes we struggle with sin because we redefine it. We categorize it in such a way, well, what I'm doing is not so bad to make ourselves feel good about what we're doing. Or sometimes we say, well, that was just an unfortunate decision or that was just a miscalculation. Or sometimes we ignore how offensive it is to God that he saved us for his glory. And unlike Joseph, who's tempted by Potiphar's wife, when he responds, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? That's the motivation Paul is giving us in the book of Romans. That the one who redeemed us saved us to make us a trophy of his own glory. And the third and final question I would ask this morning is, does my life give evidence that I am Christ's slave. One of my guest professors at Dallas Seminary, an adjunct professor, I always enjoyed when he came in. And he told us this story when he was walking down the streets of L.A. where he pastored that great church. And he said he saw a man who had a sandwich sign hanging over his shoulders. And on the front it said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And he thought that guy was rather peculiar. And as he walked past him, he looked behind, and then on the back side it said, whose slave are you? Maybe he was not that peculiar. Because the truth is, is that everyone in this room and everyone listening to my voice is someone's slave. So whose slave are you? What characterizes, what typifies the tenor of your life? You say, I want to become Christ's slave. Well, the key is here in this final verse. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can choose your master. You can choose sin or you can choose the Savior. You can choose your master, but you can't ignore the consequences. If sin is your slave, the consequence is the eternal lake of fire. If the Lord Jesus is your slave... Life now and life in heaven forever. Now notice he says the free gift of God. The word for free gift is one word in Greek. It's the word charisma. 
In fact, from the root of that word is the word charis, that we translate grace throughout the New Testament. You could render it, but the free grace of God is eternal life. He doesn't describe eternal life as a wage, but as a free gift, because none of us deserve it. You can go to heaven if you will place your faith in the work of Jesus Christ, if you will come to him and offer yourself as his slave. Have you done that? Have you received the merits of his cross? Some of us have not. And I fear you will leave the same way you came in this morning. And God says you can be saved today because salvation is not something you earn. It is a gift that you receive. Have you received it? If you say no to God today, God says, I want you to be saved today. And you tell God, no, you know what you're going to do? You're going to, according to the Bible, harden your heart. And there'll be another callous put on that heart. And for some of you, today could be the final day where the final callous is put over your human heart. Do you know that you can cross a line that you cannot cross back over? It's not entirely true where there is life, there is breath, spiritually speaking. Because you can cross a line that you can never cross back over. Jesus said they could not believe because they would not believe. And you can tell God, no, 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 no. And eventually he will say, I will give you your wish. And you will never again want to respond to the message of this book. Let's stand together for prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning for the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. I pray today for someone who is here who is uncertain of their salvation. Help them to see that salvation is not something earned but humbly received. Help them to be willing to acknowledge that their sin is offensive to you. That it deserves death, but help them to realize that Jesus took that death so that they could become a slave to righteousness. I pray today for someone who's never done that. You said today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today I invite you in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, for those of us who have met you in conversion, help us to understand these liberating truths as we walk through this section of Scripture. That we now have a new choice that we can present ourselves as slaves to the Lord Jesus, as living in holy sacrifices. Help us this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, and the daily choices of life to present ourselves to him, the members of our body, as slaves of righteousness, knowing that we become a slave of the one whom we obey. Father, as I've been preaching, you've been speaking to the hearts of men and women in this room. And some who have made some bad choices and some sinful acts. And those things have a hold on them. Help them today to begin to make right choices in Jesus Christ. And we ask it for his honor. Amen. To listen to this or any of the messages from our series in Romans, why not download the Search the Scriptures app for iPhones, iPads, and Android devices. Just visit your iTunes store or Google Marketplace and search for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. You can also listen to or download this or any of our Search the Scriptures studies 
from our website, searchthescriptures.org. And of course, if you would like a CD or DVD copy, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM30 entitled, Whose Slave Are You? Tomorrow, when we continue our study in the Book of Romans, we'll look at becoming released from the law. Join us then as we search the Scripture. Thank you.